Talo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Olo Ingwa or Koroe Hawkins. Coming up. The military who live off base get an allowance that tends to drive up rental prices. We revisit the long-running tensions on Guam due to the heavy United States military presence. Also, she was championing women's rights uh, that really are a big contribution to Tonga. Tonga's late princess, Siu Ilikutop, remembered as a champion for women's rights. And later on, we found out more about National Geographic's new five-year Pacific Ocean expedition. There have long been tensions on Guam due to the heavy United States military presence there. But as Washington moves to counter China's presence in the region, it's sending more soldiers and missiles to Guam and updating naval facilities there. Just what do people on the island, especially the indigenous Chamorro people, think about it all? Don Wiseman spoke with the director of the Pacific Islands Development Program at the Hawaii-based East-West Center, Dr. Mary Therese Hattori, who is herself from Guam and is Chamorro. As I understand it, there are 22,000 American troops there, about to go to 27,000. Where they have them, have they brought in families with them? Yes, many of them bring in families. They reside on base, but and I don't know the number, but you know, I live in Hawaii and we see similar problems with housing prices going up because the military who live off base get an allowance and that tends to drive up rental prices to the point where they're pricing locals out of the market. So that's been going on for a while, but it's going to get clearly a whole lot worse. Yes. And of the population of 168,000, just how many then are part of the military and either as serving soldiers plus families, we're talking what's half the population of the island, or are we? Oh, not, not, no, not, not quite that, not quite that high. But certainly significant. But they are significant, yes, it is significant. And amidst the bringing in of more troops, there is the missile developments, there are more aircraft, there's bases for nuclear submarines being tarted up and and so on and so on. What is the reaction of locals? It really varies. You've got, you know, for example, the current administration, you know, will highlight the positives, the employment opportunities for locals, the investment in local infrastructure. But then you've got other folks who, you know, like uh, Ken Cooper says, with all of the military buildup, that people are feeling less safe. So while the country may feel that it's better defended, the safety of the Chamorro people is not part of the equation. And it's sort of the opposite. We feel less safe because Guam is now a target that, you know, the tip of the spear is going to break first, right, in, the, in, a, in a battle. And with all of the tensions, I mean, you know, you just had the Okinawan evacuation alert with the, the missile test from North Korea yesterday. And and so we were seeing all of this tension in, in the region. And it, it may mean that more of a military buildup and, and greater defense capabilities on Guam will actually make us more of a target. The indigenous Chamorro people, how, how much of a percentage of the population are they? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have that off the top of my head. But, um, you know, recently the, the United Nations did issue a rather scathing report because Guam is still one of the few places where the indigenous people are denied a right to self-determination. So that's still an issue. Maintaining 
the culture. Maintaining their language has been an issue for a long time, but there's a suggestion, at least, that that's getting harder and harder to do. Well, my mother is, is a native Chamorro speaker. We have language immersion schools, Chamorro language immersion schools. There's more of a commitment to revive the language. So there are language revitalization movements that are happening. It's not a lost language by any means. You see the similar pattern in, in a lot of places that were colonized by outsiders. You know, the other point I would make is that the United States is constantly putting itself forward as a Pacific nation and claiming to have commitments and a deep desire for meaningful engagement with the Pacific in response to China's engagement in the Pacific. And so this focus on competition with China is motivating the United States to put itself out there as a Pacific nation and as a partner for the Pacific. But as a Chamorro woman who lives in the state of Hawaii, I would argue that the United States really needs to take a look at its track record and its relationships and meaningful engagement with the Pacific Islanders with which it has historic relationships. American Samoa, Guam, and the Kofa nations and Native Hawaiians, Native Hawaiians, right? So look at the track record, look at Red Hill, the contamination of the water, lack of self-determination on Guam, military buildup, environmental degradation, right? If, if this is how America treats the Pacific Islanders with whom it has historic ties, how can other Pacific Islanders really believe that the United States government wants to be a true partner and a Pacific nation? I've seen accounts talking about the junk in the water and the oil in the water around the island, and this is being blamed on the military. I will say the environmental degradation, it goes further back in history. And we had the nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands. The islands that are downwind of that were impacted. People from other islands, including Guam, are downwinders, right? So the environmental degradation dates you know, back to that point. But also the claims of Agent Orange and other toxins, I think military personnel who are in Guam, served in Guam, are still reporting medical issues from their service on, on Guam. And, you know, just similar to Hawaii, where military bases are, there have been contaminants in the um, water supply and in the soil. This general dissatisfaction that exists, how does it manifest itself? Well, you know, it, it, the perceptions and the positions vary. So there are many people on Guam who are extremely patriotic and have, have served in military, will continue to serve in the military, and have very positive experiences and lots of opportunities that they've benefited from as members of the armed forces. So there's, there is that tension, and you see this in other parts of the Pacific, including the Federated States of Micronesia, where you have a, quite a few people enrolling in the military. So there's this tension between this you know, patriotism and the positive opportunities that can happen through military service and then the negative issues and all the problems that occur with military buildup and the buildup of defense systems and the use of, of land for national defense. So there are protests, independence, Guahan, um, the, the folks who are pushing for, for independence, but even people who are just, you know, I, I'm not taking a position in terms of status, but I, I do believe Indigenous people have a right to self-determination, and we aren't even been, being given that right. And the self-determination issue then gets amplified by 
the military issues. So these two issues may seem separate, but they're not. And they tend to have this amplifying effect, I think. People who may be dissatisfied with political status, I think they may have more support from people who are dissatisfied or concerned with military buildup. There's some who will say that any anyone who questions or is critical of the military buildup or even the lack of self-determination is unpatriotic. Representation and voting, these are American ideals. So I don't see how questioning this lack of self-determination is not patriotic. Uh, I think we share ideals. Chamorro people share, you know, many ideals that Americans hold dear. So I think we should be allowed to have discussions and air our concerns without being labeled unpatriotic. Tributes have been flowing throughout the week for the late Tongan princess Meletsu Ilikutapu, who passed away in Auckland on Sunday, the 28th of May. She leaves behind a positive legacy for Tongans and New Zealand Pacifica, for whom she actively advocated and worked for. Finau Funua has more. At a chapel in West Auckland, a funeral visitation was held for the late princess Meletsu Ilikutapu. Leaders from New Zealand's diverse Pacifica community were in attendance, including Sir Michael Jones and Labour MP Jenny Salesa. Māori King Tuheitia also attended the service, where he was received by Tongan Princess Angelica Latufui Beka. According to the Tonga Palace Office, Princess Siulikutapu passed away on Sunday in an Auckland hospital surrounded by family. A day after her death, New Zealand's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins expressed his condolences in a press release. Minister for Pacific Peoples Barbara Edmonds paid tribute to the late princess in Parliament. Note that she was a formidable leader and a proud advocate for women, and that she played an instrumental role in the government's apology for the 1970s dawn raids. She courageously fought for causes that were important to both her people and the wider Pacific such as the preservation of the Tongan language. Princess Melesi Ulikutapu is well-respected in both Tonga and New Zealand. She was the first woman to be elected to Tonga's parliament and in her later years moved to New Zealand, where she actively advocated the rights of overstayers and disadvantaged Pacifica. General Manager of the Wellington Tongan Leaders' Council, Daintui Nukuafe, said that the princess inspired Tongan women as a female leader. Championing women's rights and all. I think that's, uh, that's really a, a big contribution to Tonga as a nation. She was the first female to be elected as an MP in Tonga, first woman elected as uh, People's Rep. Uh, her keynote speaking at the New Zealand Dawn Raids uh, apology in 2021, where she represented all Pacific. Secretary of the Auckland Tongan Community, Kennedy Mayakafa, said it's a loss for all Tongans who looked up to her. He said the princess was devoted. This is a very sad uh, time for all of us. Um, that One of the members of the um, royal family has passed. Um, this uh, Her Royal Highness uh, uh, Princess Amele Shilikitapu Kalaniwalu Fotofili. You know, a lot of our Tongan people admired uh, Shirley Tapu for her community involvement. 
One of her most memorable public appearances in recent times was the emotional speech she gave in 2021, accepting a formal apology by the New Zealand government for the dawn raids of the 1970s. Princess Iuliko Tapo accepted the apology. I am very grateful for your government for making the right decision to apologize, to right the extreme inhumane, racist, and unjust treatment. Specifically against my community in the Dawn Raids era. Princess Melasi Ulikutapu will be flown back home to Tonga for a state funeral at a date to be confirmed by Tonga's palace office. For the first time, the countries in the PESA Plus Free Trade Agreement are meeting face to face this week on New Year. Eight Pacific nations have ratified the deal and another six nations are parties to it. The regional governance meeting is being held on the island, the first chance for such a face-to-face because of the COVID-19 lockdowns. PESA Plus officials have also been undertaking an exercise in how to ensure countries like Niue can get the most benefit from the agreement. Don Wiseman spoke with two of the advisors from the implementation unit, Dr. Alisi Holani and Roy Langolango, about labor mobility and support for the private sector. He began by asking Mr. Langolango how it would help a small country like Niue with a tiny private sector. I think for Niue, it's um, through Pesa Plus, it's support for the, the private sector. Um, and the other side of that is creating the enabling environment for the public sector, you know, around legislative changes or amendments, policy, those sort of things. But I think um, also supporting the private sector to be able to make the most out of PESA Plus chapters. In a place like Niue, of course, the private sector is tiny. What do you do? Yeah, we've already done some work with some of the Niue private sector here. There was a business that we assisted with getting their products tested. So um, the products were sent to New Zealand to get that testing because um, without that testing, they wouldn't be able to create the labels that's required. So um, for them, that was a big thing because then it opens up the, the markets to Australia and New Zealand um, by meeting the labeling requirements. So uh, that's already something that we've provided some assistance with. The new way honey here, they used to import their bottle um, jars from NZ, but we've been able to provide them with some molds that they can create it here in the way rather than having those extra expenses to try and get it out of New Zealand. Seemed quite simple for everyone else, but for countries like Niue who are trying to get market access into Australia, New Zealand, and hopefully onto other markets like the UK and you, um, these things are important for them to be able to get their products onto the shelves. You know, you got to have the right labelling to meet the standards in New Zealand or Australia. So uh, those those are really important. And what that's been able to do for those Niue businesses is to be able to get their products into New Zealand or Australia. I'm intrigued by this. So they're making their own glass bottles. We provided them some molds to make some of those um, the bottles here. In terms of your comment on the small private sector here, so just in terms of the scope of the PESA Plus, because it co- it is a comprehensive free trade agreement that covers all aspects of trade, so trade and goods, trade and services, investment, and an arrangement on labor mobility. For a small country like Niue, with a population of under 1,700, its remoteness, given that there's only one flight in each week, the development challenges that Niue faces is quite stringent. And for such a small place, we have to really look at the context of the country, their capacity, and their, I guess, the pace of development that they can undertake. And this agreement is really flexible enough to facilitate that. And it it doesn't just look at uh, providing that enabling environment, but it has a development cooperation agreement 
that can really provide the strategic support that can cater to the key comparative advantages that Niue has, and like what our head had mentioned in terms of trading goods, but just in terms of also our assessments on GDP over the past five to 10 years, it's very clear that for a small country like Niue, trade and services is also critical and their tourism industry, the sector that has the, the greatest economic potential to drive development and the trade and services agreement within the Pesha Plus. It's the only agreement in the Pacific that covers comprehensive commitments on trade and services. And so it has the potential to really drive um, trade and services development for Niue. And I think also in terms of Niue's capacity, this whole transition into um, digital trade, digital economy, you will find that in most of the businesses here in Niue, it's very e-commerce driven. And so there is this huge potential to drive um, digital trade um, and increase a new US participation in digital trade, especially in e-commerce, given that it's such a small country. And the Peso Plus Agreement under the Trade Services and Investment provides an enabling environment, but as well, it looks at how we can get those regulations and policies in place to drive and increase digital trade by new way. I know you're in charge of labor mobility, Elise. In terms of a small place like Niue, what opportunities are there to bring workers in from, I don't know, Fiji, uh, the Philippines, wherever? Because if tourism's to grow, of course, they will need people, but will they be able to accommodate them? Will they fit in in such a small environment? Yes, we find that labor is a key component for sustainable development here in Niue. And the labor shortages that Niue faces cuts across all sectors. So it's not just tourism and, and agriculture, but it's also in the critical services like health and education. And so we received a request from the government of Niue to look at how we can facilitate movement of workers from other Pacific Island countries to meet those labor shortages. For example, in the health sector, they're looking and about 10 nurses. And so it's it's manageable. And the demand from here is more at the semi-skilled and skilled levels. But I guess the issue that we find is that we have to put in place the, the necessary regulatory framework to ensure that we're not only meeting those labor shortages and to support development in the long term for Niue, but at the same time, we're also ensuring that the workers that co- actually come in, they, they are protected and the working standards that they are in meet international standards, labor standards. And so we do look forward to to the work that we're going to be doing in this area for labor mobility, given that it is a cross-cutting issue, not only for, for trading goods, but also for trading services as well, as well as for the critical services that NUA needs. National Geographic's Pristine Seas has launched what they're calling the Global Expedition. The organization plans to spend five years exploring the remote tropical Pacific on a mission to support local conservation efforts in the world's most diverse ocean ecosystem. It sees the mission as part of the fight against global warming, food insecurity and nature loss by protecting 30% of the planet by 2030, also known as the 30 by 30 campaign. National Geographic explorer Enric Sala speaks with Caleb Fodringham about the project. So Pristine Seas is a project that combines research, storytelling, policy work and economic analysis to help support local conservation efforts. In, in specifically, in the last 
15 years, we have been working with local communities, indigenous peoples, and governments around the world to help create marine protected areas. And the next phase is this global expedition where we are going to spend the next five years traveling, exploring, surveying, working with local partners and governments in the Central and Western Pacific to help support local conservation efforts, to help support efforts to increase ocean protection in the region. Fantastic. And um, you're, you're obviously going on this big expedition, is that right? It's going to be a five-year expedition, and not, nobody is going to be <laughs> there the whole time, <laughs> but we will have teams rotating throughout the years. And yes, I, I plan to be there as often as, as I can. You know, who wouldn't like to spend time diving in some of the most amazing places in the ocean? Definitely, definitely. And you said that this initiative is going to help with conservation efforts. Could you give me an example of how this could help? Today, the ocean is suffering from many threats. Overfishing, global warming, pollution. There are many threats that are also many solutions. But there is one thing we can do today and starting to have an impact tomorrow. And this is a proven solution called marine protected areas, areas where human activities, human threats are, are reduced so marine life can bounce back and provide benefits to people. An example is, well, there are many examples around the world of, of protected areas that have delivered these benefits. One thing we know is that when we protect an area from fishing, Marine life recovers spectacularly. On average, the abundance of fish increases by 500% within a decade. And the more fish there are in a protected area, the more they reproduce, the more babies they have. And many of these fish spill over the boundaries of these reserves, helping to replenish the fishing grounds around. So having fish in a reserve helps the fishermen living around it. Um, so obviously deep sea mining is a huge discussion point at the moment. Um, some countries have already, you know, started their exploration phase. The Cook Islands is one of them. Are you going to be looking at different species and how they could be impacted by deep sea mining on this expedition? The focus of our, of our expedition is to assess the health, the current health of the marine environment in the places where we're going to visit and, and support local conservation efforts. We can, we have the technology to survey marine life from the surface to the 6,000 meters depth. Um, but our goal is not to look at the impact of specific activities, at the impact of deep sea mining, for example, but to set a baseline to assess the current health of the environment so we can compare this baseline against uh, future changes. But we do know that deep sea mining is, a, is an activity that is very appealing to many nations because of the promise of a huge economic profits. We don't know enough about the impact of deep sea mining on, on deep sea life. And also we need to be conscious about the potential um, climate change impacts of deep sea mining, because there is a lot of sediment on the seafloor where these operations would take place that contains a lot of carbon. We know that the seafloor, the sediment on the seafloor is the largest carbon sink on the planet. So disturbing that sediment and releasing that carbon can also add to climate change. So there are so many unknowns that makes it uh, tricky, makes it dangerous to open up the entire ocean to deep sea mining. And just, you mentioned technology before. Is it okay if you just tell me how you'll survey? We want to know how marine life is doing from the surface 
to the, the, the deep ocean. So for the surface, for the first 50 meters, we use the traditional technology of the scuba divers. We have people with scuba tanks doing visual counts of fish and corals, taking photographs, collecting, uh, collecting data. But then as we go deeper, we will have a submarine that allows us to go down to 400 meters. This is a, a manned submersible with a pilot and two scientists and two seats for scientists, also for, for um, with a potential to collect samples and film, so we can explore, spend hours down there, all the way down to 400 meters below the range of the divers. But still, we can access uh, the waters down to 6,000 meters with our deep cameras. We have these cameras developed by the National Geographic Exploration Lab. These are basically like big glass balls, like the size of an over, oversized basketball with a digital camera inside and light and a computer. We drop off the side of our boat, they go down to the bottom, film for hours, and then they come back to the surface where we pick them up and download the data. So these are different, uh, different technologies that allows us to, to survey Everything from microbes to sharks from the surface to, to the deepest part of the ocean. That's specific waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, Tofa Soifu.